This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, that would be me, and this would be Radio Parallax. You can pretty much count on that for the next 59 and a half minutes. I'd like to note I was very excited to receive an email from uh, KDVS's general manager, Renner Burkle, about the fact that uh, a great local institution, the Sacramento News and Review, whom we quote from, I don't know, virtually every program, I would say, is currently looking to interview some KDVS DJs who are on the air from 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. We think this could turn into some uh, some wonderful uh, writing about uh, what what our brethren here in the music department, do so well night after night, year after year, in those small hours of the morning, bringing you day in and day out, as, as they do, those wonderful eclectic musical selections that you tune in for. I've heard some pretty great stuff over the years, over the decades for that matter, here on KDVS, and I think it's great that uh, the good people at the SNNR are going to chronicle some of that. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so without much further ado, let us begin with On This Date in History, which is February 14th, best known as Valentine's Day. We should take a moment to cite the brief history of Valentine's Day, I think. It began as a liturgical celebration of one or more of the early Christian saints who were named Valentinus. The day was first associated with romantic love in the circle of Geoffrey Chaucer in the High Middle Ages, when the tradition of courtly love flourished. By the 15th century, it had evolved in an occasion in which lovers expressed their love for each other by presenting flowers, offering confectionery, and sending greeting cards, known as Valentines. On a program some years ago, we talked about the link between St. Valentine's Day and the rites of an ancient Roman festival known as Lupercalia. Wikipedia disputes this, noting that while popular modern sources claim links to an unspecified Greco-Roman February holiday alleged to be devoted to fertility and love to St. Valentine's Day, in fact, prior to Chaucer in the 14th century, there were no links between the saints named Valentinus and romantic love. We don't profess to be experts on this, but some of you out there probably are. So... Don't hesitate to drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax and educate us about this matter. We will report on any such responses on next week's program. But uh, a lot of stuff happened on February 14th in history. Sadly, it was on this date in 1779 that the English explorer and navigator Captain James Cook was killed by Hawaiians during his third visit to the Pacific Island Group. On this date in 1876, the United States rival inventors Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray both applied for telephone patents, and there's quite a bit to that story. For more information on this, we would refer you to our own archives at radioparallax.com. Specifically, our interview with Seth Shulman about his book, The Telephone Gambit, Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret. On this date in 1886, California orange growers shipped their first trainload of fruit. From Los Angeles, which up till I think World War II represented uh, America's most fertile agricultural county. Yes, L.A. County. On February 14th in 1895, The Importance of Being Earnest, probably Irish playwright Oscar Wilde's most famous work, premiered in St. James Theatre in London. 
51 years ago today, February 14, 1962, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy hosts the first televised tour of the White House. And it shocks me to realize I actually remember that. And on February 14th in the year 2000, an unmanned American spacecraft arrived at Eros, the largest near-Earth asteroid, and began a year-long survey of the object. And speaking of asteroids, our planet... Earth is going to be buzzed tomorrow by an asteroid about 45 meters across, which doesn't seem that big, but it's similar in size to that space projectile that exploded over an uninhabited area of Siberia in 1908, which ripped up 80 million trees across 2,000 square kilometers. Asteroid 2012 DA-14, and I wish they would have come up with a better name than that, is going to whiz past us at a relative speed of five miles per second. As you may be aware, our geosynchronous satellites orbit the Earth 35,000 kilometers out. 2012 DA-14, which we'll just call 14 for short, will come within 27,000 kilometers, well within the orbit of our satellites. Fortunately, there's apparently no chance it will hit any of them. Apparently 14 is going to be pretty tricky to spot. I think you have to be on the other side of the world to actually see it. Uh, it and to do that, you're going to need a good pair of binoculars. New Scientist magazine lists a, a map of where to see it from Hong Kong. So if you are in Hong Kong, and I know some of you listeners actually are, don't hesitate to tell us what you saw, if anything. For more information, there are numerous websites you can check, but we would particularly like to point out the B612 Foundation. We're hoping to get astronaut Rusty Schweikert on this program to talk about uh, what the Foundation would like to do about such objects. They do have some plans in place to move dangerous near-Earth asteroids out of a collision course if we find that uh, one is going to hit us. To do that, we're going to need some advance notice, and we're going to need a lot of effort and technology, and hopefully in the months to come we will discuss that uh, at some length. Our quote of the day comes from Aristotle, who once said, A friend to all is a friend to none. Our quip of the day comes from H.L. Mencken, who said, A good politician is quite as unthinkable as a good burglar. Our jokes of the day come from the writers of, first of all, Conan O'Brien, who said last week, A member of Congress is criticizing Steven Spielberg after he discovered parts of the movie Lincoln are historically inaccurate particularly the scene where Lincoln dies in the mouth of a great white shark. And we also have the writers of Jimmy Fallon to thank for this one. It was just revealed that the Federal Reserve was hacked last Sunday. It's pretty serious. In fact, they say the hackers could have made off with as much as a negative $14 trillion. Our stat of the day is $2 billion, which is the amount the cash-strapped Postal Service says it will save by stopping Saturday mail deliveries. Yes, apparently the Postal Service was stuck with a mind-boggling loss last year of $16 billion. That uh, mind-boggling would be in quotes because we spent that much on the Iraq war, something like every five weeks for like nine straight years. The $2 billion we're going to save... $2 billion per year, keep in mind, we're going to save by not having mail delivered on Saturdays. Was an amount we squandered on the war about every five days. For what? 
nine, nine years, something like that. Now, don't get us wrong. We're all for fiscal responsibility here at Radio Parallax. We just wonder why it is some people don't think that ever needs to apply to the military. This week, by the way, marks the 10th anniversary of Secretary of State Colin Powell's lie fest before the United Nations. Now, we have to confess uh, to some chagrin over the fact that we have not yet brought Norman Solomon onto this program, in spite, uh, in spite of talking about it for quite some time now. I do want to cite the essay he wrote on February 5th about this 10-year anniversary of Colin Powell's orgy of mendacity. To excerpt from it a bit. When Secretary of State Colin Powell spoke to the U.N. Security Council 10 years ago, countless journalists in the United States extolled him for a masterful performance, making the case that Saddam Hussein's Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. The fact that the speech later became notorious should not obscure how easily the truth became irrelevant in the process of going to war. Ten years later, with Powell's speech a historic testament of shameless deception leading to vast carnage, we may not remember the extent of the fervent accolades. At the time, fawning praise was profuse across the USA's mainstream media spectrum, including the nation's reputedly great newspapers. The New York Times editorialized that Powell was all the more convincing because he dispensed with apocalyptic invocations of a struggle of good and evil and focused on shaping a sober factual case against Mr. Hussein's regime. The Washington Post was even more war-crazed, headlining its editorial irrefutable and declaring that after Powell's UN presentation, quote, it is hard to imagine how anyone could doubt that Iraq possesses weapons of mass destruction, unquote. Said Norman Solomon, basic flaws in Powell's UN speech were abundant. Slanted translations of phone intercepts rendered them sinister. Interpretations of unclear surveillance photos stretched to concoct the worst. Summaries of cherry-picked intelligence detoured around evidence that Iraq no longer had WMDs. Ballyhooed documents about an an Iraqi quest for uranium were forgeries. He notes later the invasion began six weeks after Powell's tour de force at the United Nations. Noting that 19 months after the speech, this is in mid-September of 2004, Powell made a terse public acknowledgement that, quote, I think it's unlikely we will find any stockpiles, unquote. And speaking of those supposedly great newspapers, the New York Times and Washington Post, we would remind you that uh, they backed away from Gary Webb's expose of the connection between American crack cocaine and the anti-Contra war in Central America back in the 1980s. His 1996 piece should have won him a Pulitzer Prize. Instead, it got him attacked from all sides, in particular from the New York Times, Washington Post, and, sadly, Los Angeles Times. We're glad to report there's a movie in the works about what happened to Gary Webb. The film will be entitled Kill the Messenger and will star Jeremy Renner. We'll have more to say about that in the weeks to come. And from our mailbag, we would like to thank Lisa for sending us a bit about how the Koch brothers invented the Tea Party, supposedly a grassroots movement originating in 2009, Back in 2002, to quote from Daily Coast, shattering the public perception that the Tea Party is a spontaneous popular citizens movement, a new academic paper provides evidence that an organization founded by David and Charles Koch attempted to launch the Tea Party in 2002. The peer-reviewed study appeared in the academic journal Tobacco Control, entitled 
to quarterback behind the scenes, third-party efforts, the tobacco industry, and the Tea Party, showing that the group, Citizens for a Sound Economy, launched a Tea Party movement website, www.usteaparty.com, that went live in 2002. We would refer you to the Daily Coast for a screenshot of the archived U.S. Tea Party site as it appeared online on September 13, 2002. It's since been taken down. We also want to very much thank Isaac, who sent us the following. Sacramento Mayor Kevin Johnson is preparing this week to visit Houston, Texas, and lobby NBA officials to keep the Sacramento Kings in our city at the NBA All-Star Game. While many feel that the mayor deserves to be commended for his efforts, comments made in the press give me much pause, in particular this statement from NBA Commissioner David Stern from a week ago. I think it deserves your attention. Quote, The mayor of Sacramento has advised us that he'll be back soon with a proposal from his group to buy the team in Sacramento and build a building in Sacramento with a substantial subsidy from the city of Sacramento. Noted Isaac, this despite the fact that the city still foresees a budget deficit for the upcoming fiscal year, and despite the fact that Sacramento voters just decided to tax themselves to restore basic city services. Isaac suggests that uh, you contact your city council person to comment on this, and we would, in fact, urge you to consider doing so. And another letter that was not sent to us, but which, frankly, I find irresistible, comes from the December 22nd edition of New Scientist magazine. A man named Patty Shannon wrote the magazine to say, In your editorial on North Korea, you said that the regime may be atrocious, but what its people need above all else is humanitarian aid. At the risk of jeopardizing my future invitations to Pyongyang to lecture on plain speaking, what they need above all else is drastic regime change. And, uh, Patty, we're with you on that one. Do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for... People who are sick of Disney World with the news that Pakistan has revealed it was planning to build a $30 million amusement park and zoo in Abbottabad, the town where Osama bin Laden was killed. Yes, we hear that audio animatronic feature, Great Moments with Ayman al-Zawahiri is packing them in. By the way, we should mention speaking of great moments of Mr. Lincoln parodies, that uh, it was Honest Abe's birthday on Tuesday. We do want to wish him a happy 204th. It was a bad week last week for following the rules with the news that an Icelandic 15-year-old girl, who has been called, for official purposes, girl, won a court battle to keep her given name, which is Blauer. Iceland's government had refused to recognize the name Blauer, which means light breeze, because it wasn't on the country's list of 1,853 approved girls' names. By the way, that allows for a bonus quote on today's program from Katherine Hepburn, which is, if you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. And yes, Radio Parallax is pulling for Blauer on this one. 
And it was surely an ugly week for those considering arson as a career, with the news that last week an arsonist was sentenced to death here in California for starting a fire that led to the deaths of five men from heart attacks. It's described as an unprecedented legal interpretation of murder. Ricky Lee Fowler, age 31, started a wildfire in October 2003 that devoured over 140 square miles of the San Bernardino area. He was convicted in August, not only of arson, but also of first-degree murder of the five men who died from heart attacks they suffered in their panicked evacuations from their homes. And the jury that convicted Fowler recommended the death penalty. Superior Court Judge Michael Smith imposed that sentence last week. And I believe we talked about those very fires on this program with my neighbor Brent Stanglin. We'll have to ask Brent a little bit more about, uh, about that. I think that in this case, justice was served, although I do hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDBS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But I'll bet it does represent the opinion of the dead guy's families. All right, an item from the Only in America file, which is pretty hard to resist goes as follows. A Washington state motorist was required to explain the meaning of his vanity license plate after a complaint that it was obscene was lodged. Tony Cava's plate, Goes to 11, is a reference to his favorite movie, Spinal Tap. But a complaint demanded that the state's license plate committee revoke it, saying the plate insinuates that his penis grows to 11 inches in length. Tony Cava won his case. State officials said that they were satisfied that Mr. Cava had proved that, quote, the complaint was, pardon my pun, a stretch, unquote. This is a top to, uh, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board, oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? And from the Only in Israel file, we have this item we've been sitting on since last summer, which is that in defiance of multiple Israeli court rulings and international opinion, an Israeli government commission declared last July that all Jewish settlements in the West Bank are legal because that land is not, quote, occupied territory, unquote. The three-member commission, chaired by retired Supreme Court Justice Edmund Levy, said that since Jordan never formally held the territory before Israel took it in the 1967 war, international laws of occupation do not apply. It recommended that the state grant approval for practically all of the unauthorized Jewish settlements in the West Bank. The decision was described as non-binding, but was noted that it could provide legal cover for Benjamin Netanyahu if he decides to recognize the settlements. And by the way, I had this tossed at me a couple weeks ago, which caused me to dig the item out from a, a local friend of mine who is a lawyer, who told me rather matter-of-factly that, oh yeah, under international law, what's going on over there, that's, that's not an occupation, which I'm sure is very reassuring for all the Palestinians that have had their land stolen, wouldn't you say? I don't know. It seems pretty obvious to, I think, everybody but two countries in the world that a two-state solution in that part of the world is necessary to ensure peace, those two nations being Israel and the United States. Why is it that everybody else seems to get it? 
And all those settlements, which I believe have at this point something like 500,000 people illegally camped out, well, that, that just confounds the peace process. All right, we've got to take a break in a minute, but I do hope, dear listener, that you've caught at least some of the, uh, the PBS programming that is showing how British naturalist Sir David Attenborough has enjoyed an illustrious 60-year career in TV broadcasting. An episode of Nature last week, which is part of a three-part retrospective, the documentarian and host shared stories about his life as a conservationist, as well as penetrating insights about the impact humans have had on the natural world. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and let's take a short break. 